the Bible passage tonight, the first reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, should be becoming quite familiar to us. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto, on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then our second reading is from Psalms, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. Thanks, Nikki. Now, um, let's just get the Monty Python thing out of the way. Uh, it was Stu's like, no. Um, uh, one of the things that movie does is it makes fun of us as Christians for things that we do that are dumb that we shouldn't be doing. Like, often it's fair cop kind of stuff. And uh, in this case, the whole Blessed the Cheesemakers thing I think picks up that often we don't hear what Jesus is saying in this somewhat well-trodden uh, kind of area of the Sermon on the Mount. So it makes sense for us to spend some time thinking about exactly what he is saying. But before we get there, uh, I just want to say once, I don't have to say it a hundred times, that Jude was going to come with us and she's really bummed that she can't. Uh, hi, honey. Um, so all those people, all those faces who I'm seeing and recognising, sorry, honey, um, but it's great to be here. It's really exciting to, uh, to see how Soul Revival has continued to go and grow, uh, and it's a great privilege to open the Bible with you, um, which is our cue to get on with things. So let me pray for us as we uh, try and work out what Jesus is talking about, not with cheesemakers, but with the pure in heart. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you uh, not only uh, taught us in sending your son to, to speak, but you continue to teach us as you send your spirit to help us understand. And we pray tonight as we continue in this series looking at the Beatitudes, please help us to hear you clearly and to be glad, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, sometime so far back in history that I fear it was last century, I was sent on a course for work that was being held in England. I'm off to a good start here, aren't I, Stu? I mentioned England in the first sentence. Good. Uh, so it was a work course. I had half a day off, one half of a day of time to myself to be a tourist. I, I tried to get earlier flights. It didn't work. So with my one half day, I went to the nearest interesting town that I could find, which was Winchester. And I uh, toddled off on the train. I got there. I had this lovely time walking around. And then I came across this great hall in which hanging on the wall was, fingers crossed, ta-da. Now, it's not the original round table. And you can tell because it doesn't have any legs. Uh, it makes a terrible table. Uh, but if you look close up at it, uh, which might be tricky for you at this point, but if you, you know, afterwards want to come and look really close, uh, you'll notice that the guy sitting at the top in pride of place looks an awful lot like a young Henry VIII. Henry VIII never had a problem with drawing attention to himself, and uh, he found this tabletop, he painted it up to bathe himself in the reflected glory of the ancient king that he was invoking, King Arthur. So it comes from the 16th century. But interestingly, the wood was cut down in the 12th century, so it looks like someone else had the same idea beforehand. Henry just decided to update the paint and put himself in uh, the top slot. You've probably all heard stories of Arthur and his knights of the round table. You could make a case for claiming that his table is the most famous piece of furniture in human history. It's not much, but you know, if you're a table, you can't aspire to much. Uh, except, of course, that's not true. And by design, Arthur was himself bathing in the reflected glory of a still more ancient king, Jesus. The legendary round table, the plan was that it was styled after the table which hosted the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples. That's a, one of the reasons why a persistent story associated with the Knights of the Round Table is their quest to find the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus shared around at the Last Supper. Now, I was going to play you a clip from Monty Python, the movie The Holy Grail, but it turns out that they're not actually always accurate, those movies. <laughs> well, the story goes that Arthur had a spare seat kept at his table that was known as the Siege Perilous. Now, it's pretty unusual for people to give names to their furniture, but Arthur seems to have had a bit of a habit of this. Anyway, the word siege originally just meant seat. I guess the modern translation for the Siege Perilous, we would say the hot seat. The thing about the Siege Perilous was, if it wasn't yours and you sat in it, you died, which is, that's perilous. The seat was reserved for the knight who would find the grail the knight who was the purest of them all. When Lancelot's son Galahad turns up at court, he sits in the seat, he doesn't die, and everyone goes, oh, well, it must be him. And so it's time for us to all go off and find the grail. Why they don't just send Galahad to do it? Because they know he's going to be the one who achieves it? I don't know. Maybe they were just tired of sitting around for a while. Anyway, off they all go, and a couple of the brightest sparks decide they'll go with Galahad, because they're more likely to have success. 
It turns out that the grail is being kept at Galahad's grandfather's house. So it wasn't too hard after all. They just turn up and claim it. Easy peasy. And then Galahad and his friends are commissioned. Now you've got to make sure you hear the details of this right. They're commissioned to sail to a magic island that lies somewhere between Jerusalem and England, but also simultaneously smack bang in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert. Right? And once they get to the magic island, sailing in two directions at once, over land and sea, simultaneously, once they do that, they just leave the grail there and job done. Well, they do, and Galahad decides he's had such a jolly time of it that he can't bear to return to grubby, ordinary life, so he dies and goes straight to heaven. And they all died happily ever after in the end. It's a weird story, isn't it? It's almost as weird as starting off a sermon on Matthew 5 with some dodgy old legend that seems irrelevant. But the thing is, I think when we hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, we start thinking about Galahad and people like him. People who are so outrageously godly, the cream of the Christian crop, those who are so heavenly minded that they're perhaps of no earthly use. But, well, it's Jesus and he should know what he's talking about, so we add work at being pure in heart to our list for each day, and then we go out in a world that works against us doing that in all kinds of ways. It trains us to be greedy and selfish. It feeds our desires. It promises us popularity and power and prestige. So being pure in heart, it's hard work. Hard, hard work. But we want to see God, and so we do our best. God teaches us the right way to live. He's really gracious to us and we want to please him and then we get tired or something trips us up or we're distracted by something or some kind of disaster comes along and just throws all our plans for a loop and let's be honest I think we actually work better with more immediate rewards commands to love each other are just as challenging but at least it means we get to enjoy healthy relationships and friendships right now. But seeing God, that's right down the track, isn't it? And it feels like it's a long way off in the future. And actually, if you look at these Beatitudes, they're all long way off in the future kind of things. You have to wait for the, the payoff until life's through. So that's why I wanted to point us to a psalm tonight, one that will help us with understanding Jesus' instruction. There's no prizes for guessing which one. It's Psalm... 73. And it would be mean to make a guess out of the other 149 that weren't read out which one I meant, so uh, I'm not going to make a guess. Have a look at Psalm 73 uh, with me, uh, and you'll see why it makes sense. Verse 1 Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That sounds exactly right, doesn't it? It's very true, it's very wise, it's very godly. But then reality strikes. Listen to how the psalmist goes on. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. 
Their mouths lay claim to heaven, their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. You can understand him, can't you? Living a self-centred and godless life is just so much easier and the payoff's immediate. It's easy to envy those who don't have to worry about striving to be pure in heart, who don't worry about hungering for righteousness, they don't have to bear with the persecution of being followers of Jesus. So it's understandable when he draws his conclusion in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. There's more to be said in the psalm, but before we go on, I want to take you back to that siege perilous, the seat reserved for the purest of hearts. I told you that Arthur had supposedly modelled his round table on the Last Supper. And if you think about it for a moment, you'll realise why there's a seat empty. That was the seat abandoned by Judas Iscariot when he left the meal to betray Jesus. It was a seat of condemnation. It's no wonder in the Arthur stories that the seat was associated with death. But, I mean, that's a legend, of course. It's just a fairy story. There's no truth to it, right? The truth is, that seed is for each of us. We've all betrayed Jesus. We've all turned against God. So many times, we long ago lost count. We've elevated our own wants above God's will. We've chosen the things we care for ahead of God's commands. Our hearts have not been pure. It's our seat, our perilous perch. And it's crowded, isn't it? I mean, it's not just me that's let Jesus down, or or you. It's the whole human race. And we try and sit at the feast table with Jesus, all the while mocking what he has taught us by our arrogant disobedience. Well, maybe not us believers, right? Except when we start thinking like this psalmist. Fortunately, he realised the foolishness of his thinking. In verse 17, he goes to the sanctuary of God. And in that place, he realises it's eternity that matters. There, the wicked will have no chance. But verses 23 and onwards, rejoice that God keeps his people safe and he will satisfy our deepest hopes. And when you stop to think about it, it's a bit obvious really, isn't it? You know, that it doesn't pay off to run against God and then turn up and, and see what he thinks about it. The gospel's always really been clear that, you know, it's about having hope. That's one of those big names, big words in there, isn't it? About, you know, faith and hope and love. And hope's got to be important. We, we've always been told we're hoping for a future. The line of thinking that the psalmist is on the verge of falling for, it's pretty dumb. And yet, it doesn't seem to stop us from kind of treading that same path as well. So why is that? You know, if it's kind of obvious that the promise hasn't been changed, it's always we're waiting for Jesus to come back, why do we fall for the impatience and the envy? I think the problem is that Galahad fellow, or what he represents. You know how these verses in Matthew are called the Beatitudes? It comes from the old Latin word for blessed, Beatus. I don't know much Latin, but there you are. Beatus, though in plain old Aussie, that's just beat us, which seems appropriate. The goals that Jesus lays out, they seem to beat us down 
when they're not beating us up? Pure in heart? I mean, that's tough when you're hitting the mark and it's brutally easy to fail. Galahad is bad for us. But the good news is, I don't think Jesus is looking for a knight in shining armour. So come with me now to Psalm 24 and I'll show you what I mean and why we've got this one as well. The first couple of verses set the scene for us. It's pretty simple. God is awesomely bigger than everything. That's what gets the writer to verse 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Seriously, when God is so much, how on earth can anyone come into his presence? Who could hope to be holy enough? The answer's in verse 4. Yep, there it is, the pure in heart. And clean hands on top of it. It sounds like old Galahad again. But look a bit closer. It's also whoever is not trusting idols or swearing oaths in the name of false gods. And verse 6 makes it even clearer. He's talking about those who seek the face of God. That's the key thing here. A pure heart is not about perfection, but intention. A pure heart is not about your perfection, but your intentions. See, pure can mean a couple of things. It could be speaking about clean as a whistle, pure as the driven snow, moral mastery, the perfect sinless life, the the Galahad. But it can also just mean something like single-minded or or dedicated. You're purely into that thing. And that's certainly what Psalm 24 is describing. It's talking about those who have set themselves to seek God. And it says they'll be vindicated. They will indeed see him. So it turns out that Jesus' blessing in the Sermon on the Mount boils down to this. If you want to seek God, good on you. You'll find him. He's saying it's not a pointless quest. Don't fall into despair when you stuff up. Just get up, set your eyes back on him and keep going. A pure heart is not about your perfection but your intentions. But the psalm helps us to hear that another way. A pure heart is not about your perfection, but Jesus's. You see how the psalm finishes with this picture of the triumphant entry into God's presence of the King of glory. Who is it that can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who is it with clean hands and a pure heart? It's the Lord himself. It's our King, Jesus. He's the one who triumphs. He's the one who will lead all those who trust in him into the throne room of God, that we might see his face. When we hear Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, we tend to mishear him. We think, oh, try to be pure in heart so you can see God. Try to be pure in heart. And the outcome sounds pretty awesome, so we flog ourselves to try and achieve it. We let the beatitude beat us up. And if we're at it too long, we'll let the beatitude beat us completely as we despair of ever reaching the mark and we chuck it all in. We need to remember that what Jesus is saying in this sermon He says to his disciples, to those who are following him and hearing his voice and listening to him. And he says here essentially that those who are indeed listening to him, to those who are resolved to follow him wherever he leads, that he will lead them into the kingdom to live with God forever. Later on in in the sermon, he'll say, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. God is not playing hide and seek and, and hiding from us. He's calling us. So don't hear this verse 
and fear. Hear it and rejoice. Lift up your heads too and see how Jesus, even now, is seated in God's presence. The King has been glorified. His identity is known. The curtain in the temple was torn in two and Jesus has promised that he's prepared a place for any who will come to him. Fix your eyes on Jesus and be glad. He sat in the siege perilous for you, enthroned on the cross. He paid the price of entry for you and was glad to do it. For his purity of heart was this, to undo our sin, to restore the whole of creation, to make humanity new. We are blessed because he has blessed us in every way. And now he invites all who would come to sit at his table for the great wedding feast. The Holy Grail is not some hidden relic that's only found by the saintliest. Anyone is welcome to sit with Christ in the heavens. And like the disciples who met him on the road to Emmaus, we will eat and drink with him and see his face and recognise him at last. Blessed indeed are those who seek Jesus, for we will see him. Let's thank him. Let me pray. Our Father, our Lord, it is an extraordinary thing that you give to all of us who are so undeserving the offer of fellowship into eternity with you, that you have done everything through Jesus' death and resurrection so that we might be in your presence, that we have nothing to fear, no cause for despair, the hope you have given us is certain. And so, Lord, we pray that you would keep our eyes on him, that our purity of heart would be our love for him and a desire to follow him always, so that all the glory might come to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.